Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. It's good to be back with you guys. Last week I was um, at, uh, I was asked to be the speaker for Ridgecrest, Crest Ridge camps over there, uh, their family camp, and um, it, that was an incredible time. I, I did five talks for kids ranging from my kids, youngest of which is not two yet, all the way to, to adults, and that was the most terrifying speaking I've, I've done in a long time. I don't normally talk to kids that young, um, not well, um, and, and it was fine. It was, it was fun for me, and, and none of the kids threw anything at me, and um, it was a good time, but I'm glad to be back here uh, this Sunday. Um, and we... Um, we're going to start on a book, the book of James in a second. This is our website. Um, you can see up there, valleyhope.church. The reason why this is, uh, was we're going to show you uh, something real quick. Um, our school year is starting, and that, that means that we kind of take the, the opportunity to reset and uh, try to incorporate people back into what is more normal life. So, for example, we had a new members class this morning, the first of two. If you want to come to that next week, we'll be, at, we'll be here at 9 in the morning. Um, and another thing that we want to do is encourage everybody to get involved in what is going on in the life of our church. If you're here normally, regularly, often, um, you know that pretty much everything that we do runs because we do it together. We don't have a very long list of paid staff. I'm the only person who has a full-time job here, and everybody else, the three other, four other people who are paid are, are underpaid. This is a very part-time job for them. But lots of other things are happening that require lots of work, and we need your help. And we like that. We like that we all have to work together on this thing. Um, you know, we just moved our upper elementary school Sunday school class from before church to, to back during church mostly. And um, I, I was talking to, to Becky about that class and who's in it. They're, they're second through fifth graders. And the life that comes out of that class is is pretty cool. If if you have not hung out with second through fifth graders recently, you just kind of think of if kids as this uniform block of humans. Um, second through fifth graders are in a really cool time in, in life when they're they're growing up and differentiating themselves and starting to make steps in towards an adult faith even. And uh, we we need help with that class and all of our kids classes. We need help teaching those kids. And if you're like me, who's scared often, I don't know if I can teach kids. Well, for one, we will teach you how to teach them. Two, you don't teach them alone. You always have another teacher with you. Uh, and three, they're going to think you're the coolest person ever. If you just come and hang out with them, they're ready to see adults who will, are interested in them as cool people. And you may not be saying, uh, you know, I have I've ascended the mountain and a, a light beam of calling has hit me and I feel 
irrevocably called to teach children now and forever. You might be saying, I don't know, maybe, I'm interested. Guess what? The Bible is full of people who are terrified when God called them. Um, Moses said, I don't, I don't think I can do this to God at the burning bush. Okay, so if maybe you're saying, I, I don't know if I'm as, as, scared of, as scared as Moses. Well, great, you're a candidate. Um, and we'd love to just show you what our classes look like. Just go in and watch and see. Maybe there's a, there's a space for you there. We could use your help. If you don't, really don't feel like you can teach, but you want to help our kids, if you are willing to help set up and or tear down our kids' rooms, that would make our volunteers' life easier. And you can make it easier for somebody else to teach. That would be a huge help to us. We'd love to have you do that. Um, that's open to everybody. Uh, everything that is here gets set up and taken down because this is a school. I don't know. Did you know that? This is a middle school. Yeah. This is not our building. Um, so we set up and take everything down. And we need help moving stuff out of that closet onto this stage and then doing the opposite at the end. Um, you don't have to be an expert at logistics or sound or any of that. We can teach you how to do all of that. I was talking to, to Daniel, who leads our youth stuff. In the past year, we've started a youth group. It's been small and growing. Are you prompting me? Okay. Um, um, and we were talking about what's coming in the next year, and we were talking about these Plenty of students who are in our upper elementary school class who are within a year going to be in our youth group. Almost definitely our youth group is going to grow by like 60% for sure. Uh, Daniel is looking for people to volunteer with him to help with our youth group, especially women. Because right now it's dominated by males, but what's coming is a wave of girls. And Daniel's a great guy, but we'd like a girl to help him. Um, and so he could use your investment now. If you're interested in hanging out with middle school and high school girls, developing their life, walking with them as they figure out this weird season of life, Daniel can help you find a place for that. This is up here, because this is on our website. If you want to volunteer for something, you can look, go, where was this on our website? I missed that step. Connect, volunteer, boop, brings you there. And we you can fill that out online, and we'll put you in touch with who you need to be put in touch with. We also have sign-up sheets in the back. Uh, you can sign up back there. We have other things you can volunteer with, too. If this doesn't suit your fancy, we will find something for you. So you can go back there and sign up as well. Um, this for us is a, is a joy. This is not about obligation, okay? If you, if you are 120% full in your life and you're saying, I can barely make it in the door, nobody is going to stand at that door and say, can I please see your volunteer card before we let you in, all right? But this is for us a joy because we believe God gives us gifts and he gives us one another. And those gifts are meant to be shared, used, leveraged for the benefit of those around you. And so people can do the same thing for you.
So if you are not yet volunteering with us, I want to invite you into that thing. Not, ugh, another thing I have to do, but into this relationship of sharing gifts with one another and taking care of one another. That's a, that's a good thing. It's a special thing. And it might help you find where margins in your life where you didn't think you had it. So you can play, if you can play an instrument and you want to play in our band, if you want to do art with us and for us, we have... I was at uh, Jacqueline Oliver's show last, is it, I don't, is it a show? Is that what you call it? Opening. Her art was on the walls. And there were so many people there uh, from our church who I was looking at them and they're artists. Um, Jacqueline is an amazing artist. It was incredible to see her work. But we have a bunch of people in our church who are artists. Her husband Casey and Amy and Jen and Becky, and I don't, I don't even know where the list stops. If you want to do art with us, for us, please share those gifts with us. Um, it's, a good, it's a good life to be in together. So I'd invite you to do that on our website or in the forum on the back. We'll, uh, we'll get you connected with who you need to be with. Um, we, are, we are starting a new series this morning on the book of James. Um, and this graphic will hopefully make sense as we progress through this book, through this semester. We'll be in this book all semester until, until Advent comes. Um, you know, all year we've been talking about, uh, the long, most of the year we've been talking about the, the real and true king of Israel. Looking at the life, largely of the story of David. And how Jesus is this better king than any other king in the Bible or, or anywhere else. And the book of James is not disconnected from what we've been talking about all year. The book of James is operating off of the assumption that the people of God are the people who have Jesus as king, as the best kind of king. And that, that means that if Jesus is your king, then there is a way that his people live. Uh, James has this, uh, in the lives of many people, this sort of fraught relationship. If you've read the book of James before, hopefully you have, you know that James will get in your face a little bit. He, he does not shy away from using very blunt language, seemingly harsh language, James is not afraid of saying to the people that he's writing, you need to shape up, my friend. And I, I think that's going to happen with us a little bit this, this semester. And I just want you to first just breathe and say, it's okay. Let that happen a little bit. Because if Jesus is king, if he is king, if he's our king, the odds are there are areas of your life, like there are in my life, where you are resistant to an alternative ruler. And if the Bible can never get in your face a little bit and step on your toes a bit, then probably what you're most committed to is you being king or queen of your life. And so those areas where James is going to step on your toes a little bit, it's, it's maybe some areas where you need to say, wait a second, what is, what am I doing with my life? Am I being shaped by Jesus in the way that I should? 
And James will say these things in, in concert with the rest of the Bible. Pretty famously, Martin Luther read the book of James and wasn't a big fan. He and Martin Luther, if you don't know, the reformer from the 16th century, did not sort of moderate his opinions. He was very clear with what he thought. And he said, you know, James is an epistle full of straw. It's this stuff that's, that he didn't like. Now, that's not all he said about the book of James. He didn't say it's not a book of the Bible. But it, it graded on him. Because what he wanted to hear was grace. And what it felt like James was saying is, you better do better. Now, I, we're going to talk about this over the semester. I, I don't think those messages are divorced from one another. One of the things that was on my heart when I, when I decided that, to move through the book of James is, in, in our time, in our place, for, for a good amount of time, it has been extraordinarily comfortable to be a Christian culturally. There's been cultural benefits to being Christian. And that's fine. That era is fading away. And you are in some place of coming to grips with that. But what that comfort has allowed people to do, us, our people to do often, is to take the theological propositions of what we say is the good news of Jesus and say, I believe that with no pressure at all to work that in to your daily life. So that somehow, for many people, the gospel has gotten shrunk down to this message of how do you make sure you don't go to hell when you die, which is a very thin slice, a slice, but a thin slice of what the church has always historically preached, which is this much larger message of Jesus being king. And my heart for us together as a people is that we would hear that big, thick, good news that Jesus is king of our lives. And that, that bears weight on us, that presses on us, and it lifts us up and carries us into something that is bigger and more all-consuming than just something that you can sit once a week for an hour and a half or two and say, I believe that, and walk away and, and be no different. So James is going to get out of our Sunday mornings a bit and into every other day of our life. And this is part of the good news of Jesus as King. Um, James starts his letter in chapter 1 saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. This is how we know who, who writes the book of James is just this, but you may have noticed there's no like last name here. It just says James. And there are several Jameses in the Bible. And so there's a conversation about who is this James, and I think it's a bit important to, to narrow down who we're talking about. Probably the most famous James that you would have come into contact with if you started at the beginning of the New Testament and kept reading was one of these three most important disciples, Peter, James, and John. And James and John were brothers. This is probably not that James. Not that James. Now, 
John Calvin thinks it's that James. He's pretty smart. If you want to agree with him, that's fine. I can't fault you for that. Most people agree this is not that James. Church history has, has said traditionally this is not that James. This is a different James, I'd suggest to you. This is James, the brother of Jesus. You know, Mary uh, and Joseph are Jesus' parents on earth. I um, guess you would say Joseph is his stepdad in a way. Um, he has other siblings. They pop up in the Gospels unnamed. Uh, but we know he has other siblings. And James is one of them. And this James becomes prominent in the church in Jerusalem early in the life of the church. You can see him in Acts 15 and a little bit, a couple chapters before then. After James, the brother of John, is martyred and in Acts 12, there's this other James that pops up and he becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem. That's who we would call James the Just. That's James, the brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus to one, de one degree or another. Now, he doesn't identify himself as that title. He doesn't say, hey, FYI, you should listen to me because I'm Jesus' brother. What he instead seems to be most comfortable identifying himself as, at this point, is a servant of the person who he once knew as just Brother Jesus, which is pretty remarkable. I don't know if you have siblings. I do. I am not prepared in any way to label them the leader of me at all, much less the son or daughter, in my sister's account, of God. I'm just not there. And James wasn't either for a long time. The, the appearance of Jesus' siblings in the Gospels was mostly them being annoyed with Jesus. So by this point in this writing, in his life, something has remarkably changed. This person who grew up with Jesus is able to say, now the thing that you should know about me more than anything else is I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this title that he gives Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, is, is pretty rare at this point. He's telling everyone who Jesus is. And remember, Christ is not a last name. We wouldn't say, you know, if Jesus was taking the SATs, he wouldn't feel in Christ as his last name. He's just Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is a title. It's a title that means anointed king. And James is saying, this Jesus who was my brother, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the anointed king of Israel. And he's writing to these Jewish Christians who are scattered around the world, the, the, the Mediterranean world. That's what he's saying when he says the 12 tribes of the dispersion, these scattered Jewish Christians. And what you need to know about this world at this time is that it is not an easy time in the ancient Near East. There is widespread economic failure. There's widespread famine. There's a lot of poverty. Times are hard for everybody in this region. And times are especially hard for the people that James lives with in Jerusalem who are Christians. They are experiencing economic persecution for being Christians. Because they are branching away from the Jewish faith, they are being excluded from markets and social networks. 
So that in an impoverished time, these Christians are especially impoverished. And we see that in the other parts of the New Testament where Paul is going around outside of Palestine getting together an offering for the church in Jerusalem to help sustain these people through this hard time. So James is writing as the formerly the brother of Jesus, now just the servant of Jesus, to these Jewish Christians as a leader in the specifically Jewish church in Jerusalem who are in the middle of a hard time. That's the context of this whole letter. And James will move through a lot of topics and we'll jump through them, but today we're just looking at these first two linked topics in the first eight verses and then in verse 12. So I'll read now um, verses 3 through 8 and then 12. Count it all joy, my brothers. And when he says that, he means brothers and sisters. That Greek word means that. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let me pray for us as we hear the word. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I ask God that you would penetrate our hearts, that you would make us uncomfortable with ourselves as the ruling and reigning entity in our lives. God, help us to give ourselves over to your loving, tender, and wise care. Help us to be people who see your character singly and who trust you. We thank you for this, Jesus. Amen. There's two themes here, these two separate paragraphs. One of trial and testing and and one of, of doubt. And these things go together, really. If you've been through trial and testing in hard times, you know that doubting is part of the experience. And, and for some people, doubting, seasons of doubting, are seasons of suffering in and of themselves without external factors. And James is going to, from the off, speak exactly how I said he would. He, he'll be very direct with us about how to live under these conditions and how these people who are living in difficult circumstances are meant to live. There there is here an alternative view of what suffering is for. Now, James does not say, when he says, "Count, count it all joy, as how it's often translated for us in English, he's not saying, count everything that happens to you as a happy thing. That that is transparently nonsense. And some people have have read James and said, use this verse, count it all joy. Everything that happens to you, count it all joy. And use that as a stick 
a stick of joy, ironically, picking up this stick to say, be joyful. How dare you? Don't be joyful. Be happy, you pagan monster. And that, that is not what James is doing. He's not saying that everything in your life is going to be happy. Not at all. And he's not saying that suffering, you have to trick yourself in your mind to make believe that it isn't suffering. The whole Bible is full of the people of God really and truly suffering and suffering seemingly well, but never calling it anything other than what it is, which is suffering. What James is saying is there is true joy in the midst of suffering and worked out of suffering. That for the people of God, suffering is not meant to be just an empty, haphazard, happen-to-be element of the world. We're not meant to look at life full of suffering and just say, well, that's life. It is part of the nature of life now at this point. As much as it should not be, it is part of the nature of being alive that you will suffer. And I know that's the news that everybody comes to church to hear. You're all going to suffer. But it's true. You're all going to suffer. You're all going to die. You're all going to know people who will die, which will be suffering for you. Am I covering all the bases? If you are human, you will go through agony emotionally, spiritually, for many of us physically. And the Bible never skirts around that. Never steps aside and says, hey, if you believe the right things and do the right things, you get to avoid that. That is not the message. James is speaking to a people who are in the middle of suffering. What he's saying to them is that their suffering is not irredeemable. Their suffering can do something apart from purely making you suffer. And in fact, God is in the middle of your suffering doing something in you that can shape you more and more into a person who trusts Jesus. Now, often the way that works out is not that you have this huge smile on your face and say, I love this season of my life. What that often looks like is you collapsed on the ground at the feet of Jesus, weeping for it to be over and just holding on to survive. That is the kind of suffering with purpose that James is talking about. Suffering is bad. And biblically what we'd say suffering is temporary. That God's plan is to eliminate suffering from the story of the world. But it is present. And it is not irredeemable. So he's saying to these people in Jerusalem and beyond, as you are hungry and unsure where your next meal is, is coming from. Don't let that suffering pass you by. Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. He will produce in you something that is bigger than yourself. But of course, people in the middle of suffering often cannot help but ask big, big questions about the nature of life and the nature of God. 
And James says, you are not meant to pray like a person driven by doubt. The images that he uses to, to describe doubting, he's, he's saying like there's a split in your soul. It's the first usage of this term in any Greek literature, this, the twinning of the soul, the split down in the core of you that is your doubting. He says, if you pray like one of these people, you're like, it's like looking over the surface of the sea. And just like it's never constant and flat like in a lake, it's undulating and changing with the breezes and the tides. That's you. Don't be that way. But instead, ask for wisdom from God. And he will answer you. Because he is not twinned down in his soul. He is singular in being. And you can count on him to be what you are not. Ask that God for wisdom on endurance and for all these questions that plague you. Now this too has language in it that feels like a stick ready to beat you with. Because what I would, I would say is, <clears throat> to some extent, doubting is a natural state of people, especially and including people of faith. Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, talks about doubt. And says it's not a sign of a dysfunctional faith when you experience doubt. He says these kinds of doubts are the antibodies of faith. They're showing you where the borders of your faith are. And so doubts are not to be feared. They're not a sign that you're not a person with faith. They're a sign that you actually do have faith and you are wrestling with the nature of the world. And I'm a person, I wrestle with doubts all the time. I, I spend a lot of time with my mouth closed. I know that's hard to believe right now. With my mouth closed and my brain spinning in circles. A lot of my time is spent that way. And it is a normal occurrence for me to look at my life and say, what if this thing that I'm doing, this, my job, my whole life, what if I get to the end of my life and I breathe out my last breath and it all clicks off like a light and there's nothing else? That is horrifying on a number of levels. One, that sounds terrible, turning off the lights. Two, all the time spent before turning off the lights, I wasted my whole time, everything, the whole thing. I wasted it. Of course, that kind of question occurs to people of faith. That is normal and natural. And what you don't want to do when that is you, because I assume there are plenty of people in this room who are like me, what you don't want to do is say, well, James says, i got to stuff that deep down inside. We don't talk about that. Find the deepest hole in your soul and bury it down in there. Just stuff it so nobody ever sees it. And that is not what James is saying. That's not what James is talking about. A couple reasons to believe that. For one, the Bible is full of stories of people, people of God who doubt. Abraham 
Have we heard of Abraham? He's a big one in the Old Testament. He's kind of a big character, founder of the people of Israel, beginning of the, the, the faith of Israel, whole thing. Bible verses about him saying stuff like Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Like the whole big thing with Abraham is that he trusts God. But if you read Abraham's story, he's sort of a doubting liar who always acts as if he doesn't believe God. The first story of Abraham, the first one. He hears a story, he hears a promise from God in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I'm going to do this stuff for you. The next story, the first actual thing that Abraham does in the Bible is lie and say that his wife is actually his sister because he doesn't believe God will protect him. That's the first story of Abraham. He does it a second time because he didn't learn his lesson. He sleeps with his concubine to try to produce an heir because he doesn't believe God's going to produce a son. This is Abraham, who believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And at the end of his life, God doesn't smoke him. God doesn't say, well, look, you blew it. I told you to believe. You did, and now you don't, so you're going to be barbecued forever now. Done. There's a remarkable patience with Abraham. In the, in the Gospels, there's a, a man who comes to Jesus and asks for Jesus to, to heal his child. And Jesus says that he's going to do it. And the man's response is, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus, at that moment in the Gospels, does not say, that's not good enough. Get back to me when the sentence ends after I believe. He heals that person's child. Biblical faith does not require you to turn your brain off. It does not require you to pretend like you don't hear those voices, those questions. Now what James is going to say is, you should... Embrace and engage those doubts differently as a believer than a non-believer. In our day and time, doubting is like the chief virtue of our time. Probably the most laughable thing that you can do in our day, in our culture, is to trust. For us, doubting has become the chief virtue. Dallas Willard talks about this in some of his works, like The Divine Conspiracy. You don't have to be like that. That, that, is, that is a teaching that you and I are being taught all the time, that doubting is the smarter, the more virtuous take. And what I think James would say, what somebody like Dallas Willard would say is, you should accept that people doubt but you should also doubt whether those doubts are legitimate. Don't just doubt. Doubt your doubts. If doubting is actually a, a good thing as our, as our culture teaches us, believe the message and doubt your doubts. In other words, God is not afraid of your questions. 
You think God is running some misinformation campaign? It's like, oh gosh, we've got to keep them in the dark. If they ask too many questions, they might find out the truth and then the whole thing will be exposed. God is not afraid of being exposed. If this whole thing is real, if it's all true, and God and revealed in Jesus is the meaning of life itself, he's not afraid of you asking questions about that. Go for it. What kind of questions would you like to discuss? Historical, philosophical, scientific? Embrace them all. Go after them. And at the same time, what I would encourage you is to ask questions of your doubts. Why? Why is my heart so inclined to ask those kinds of questions? Why might I want to always not receive what is supposed to be good news? Why? Doubt your doubts. James is, is talking a, about a kind of doubting with God that is fundamentally saying that I cannot trust that God is singularly good in his character. It's, it's operating off the principle that it is both true and not true at the same time. Asking whether God is good, really and truly good, is a normal thing. The believer is encouraged to ask that question in a way that the people of God have always asked. If you open the Psalms and, and read the Psalms of Lament, which are easy to find, they're pretty clear in tone, they're all throughout the book of Psalms, you will find the psalmist asking again and again, why is the world like this? Why do evil men triumph and the innocent are trampled and destroyed? When will you do something about this? They're free to ask questions of God. Free to ask these questions of doubt that we all have. And underlying and underneath it is this conviction that God does not approve of this thing that is breaking our hearts. And that God actually wants to, can, and will do something to resolve it. In that moment, there is a kind of belief and trust that undergirds even the doubt. This does not make sense to me. This is suffering and it is wrong and it is evil. And why is this happening? Because I know that you are not like this. I don't understand how this all works out. I don't understand why life is like this. I know you are not like this. And the bedrock of those doubts themselves are even then the goodness of God. That is its own kind of trust, even in the midst of asking those kinds of questions. You are encouraged to doubt and suffer that way because God has demonstrated to you his commitment to not evade the most difficult and penetrating questions of your life. 
God has demonstrated his commitment to you to address suffering head on. Because what he's done in Jesus is brought upon himself suffering. God is not removed from your questions somewhere else with all the right answers to a bunch of philosophical questions. Instead, he enters into the story of suffering and doubting humanity and he takes upon himself the suffering of us all. So when you turn to God in the times of trial and suffering, when you are just trying to endure, you are turning not to a God who is removed from the circumstances of your suffering, but has himself embraced them. When you cry out about the injustice of the world that is done to you, God doesn't say, it's fine, it's not a big deal. He is the God who has himself wrapped his arms around and embraced injustice upon himself. Jesus unjustly died. He knows what it's like for you to experience injustice. When you see the pain of evil, you see what it means for your friend or your family or yourself to be crushed in their bodies too early. He himself died a premature death, a man still full of many years of life, crushed by the power of death himself. If you have been betrayed in your life and you are suffering the emotional agony of betrayal, he himself was betrayed by his friends at the moment of crisis. His friends betrayed him. God is not removed. He has not removed himself out of the line of fire from your, your doubts, from your questions. God is not afraid of them at all because he's walked into them. I can't give you all the particularities of what that means for your particular slice of suffering in your life. I, I'm not going to be able to tell you why did this happen to me now. I don't know. I, I will never be able to tell you that. What I can tell you is God's biggest declarative answer to you is that it happened to him too. That he allowed it. He chose it. He brought it upon himself so that even in the midst of your suffering, you would not be alone and that one day you could trust he will crush it forever. The agony that you feel in your soul that squeezes these questions out of you is the same vice grip that locked on Jesus and squeezed out Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus himself can quote psalms of lament. And the good news that is in Jesus is at the end of that psalm that he quotes. Because at the end of it all in that psalm, in Psalm 22, the person who cries out and asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the one that somehow sees the one that was dead again standing on the earth and making family of those who were once his foes. That's what that psalm was about. That's what the story of Jesus is about. That is what your suffering can be about if you turn to Jesus.
And if you are here this morning and you have been weighted down by the suffering of your life, either that you have brought upon yourself by terrible choices or that has been done to you by people in power, people who were friends of yours, strangers. If you are here and you bear all the weight of that suffering on you and you do it by yourself, I don't, I don't know how you've made it this far. And I don't know how to tell you to endure by yourself. But what I can tell you is that God stands in front of you. He stands before you. And he is single-mindedly good towards you. And wants to draw out of even what seems the most irredeemable suffering. A life that will not die even when your breath stops. The God who suffers with and for you stands before you this morning totally able to handle all of your doubts. And if you would ask him for this most wise question, how is my life meant to have meaning and hope? He is ready and able to answer that today in the life, death, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day. Leave aside all your other plans. Your suffering will not go out like a, a switch. For you will never, ever, ever be alone in it again. And the God who suffered for you, he promises surely one day he will crush it forever. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that there is no one like you, that you, you are the great and singular hope of people for all of time. And you are merciful and kind with people like us. We live in an age where doubt is a virtue. And everything in, in us wants to embrace that and, and keep you at arm's length. And you are the God who can settle stormy waters. You can bring us to a place of trust, even though our trust has been broken and violated within and without, time and again. Lord Jesus, you love us. We suffered for us and with us. You're one of us forever. Father, I pray that we would see you resurrected, standing over a broken grave. And you would help us to see the great hope that is in you, this crown of life that James talks about. Jesus, help us to have all of our hopes drawn from you, that we might endure, endure, endure. 
never brushing aside the realities of suffering, but seeing on the other side of suffering a life that cannot be trampled out. And God, for those of us who are in the middle of suffering but are doing it alone or doing it without you, I pray, God, that you would make them so profoundly hungry and dissatisfied with their experience. I pray, God, that the weight of that question of what can my life mean would press down on them. And they, would, they would help, couldn't help but see you standing there offering all the meaning that they crave. Lord Jesus, I pray for everyone who is here who is still hurting and raw from all kinds of different suffering. From loss, from betrayal, from injustice, from the damage of their own sin. God, I pray that you would bring them healing. That right now, this, this morning, you would be tender and good to them. Be kind to people who have experienced a wealth of unkindness and poured unkindness on others. Father, I pray that you would help everyone here call to mind those things that have ground their soul down. And God, you would, you would bring to them healing for those things. And also that you would remind them that they have endured, they have survived, and that you are not absent from those things either. King Jesus, help us to be better and better a reflection of the King. Help us to be a trusting people. Help us to, to run to you for comfort rather than things or other people. Draw us close to you, Lord Jesus, and hold us tight until we see you face to face. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.